All right. Well, if you would, go ahead and open to the book of John. Uh, I hope to get there this morning. Um, it's going to be a couple of minutes because I'd like to provide a, a little bit of context and a little bit of an introduction. Um, I, I, can't, I can't bear to just go ahead and just jump right in uh, without, without setting the stage. Uh, Jason does have some copies, so if anybody needs a copy of the weekly reading list, if you just throw your hand up um, and Jason, Jason will walk around as we're getting started. Uh, I'll tell you if, you, if you have a comment, please, please, please raise your hand, uh, raise your hand and we'll have somebody come to you with a microphone. I'm probably not going to stop a whole lot and just ask for comments, but, but I want them. Uh, I want your feedback. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say because I know that we'll all be edified by it. As we're studying the harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I, I want us to just be impressed by the fact that everything in the Bible hinges on what we are talking about right now. From the very beginning, when you go all the way back to the Old Testament, it is all looking forward to this point in time. This period of time is what everything has been building towards. And when you get past this, when you get past this point in time, everything is looking backwards. When you have the spread of the gospel, you have these individuals that are going throughout the entire known world retelling what we are going to be studying about right now and building churches based on what we are going to be looking at right now. So this has been in the works from before the very foundation of the world. Let, let, just think very quickly about how God has communicated from the very beginning what we are going to be talking about right now. In, in the garden, after you have Satan tempt the man and the woman, and he's successful. What a, what a, what a, bleak, what a bleak picture. You have perfection, and then perfection ruined. Satan won, man zero. But God has a promise in there that it's not going to be that way forever. Satan is not going to be victorious forever. The seed of woman will crush the serpent. Pretty generic, pretty wide open, but hopeful. There is hope even in this momentary defeat. As we go to the patriarchs, you go a couple chapters further into Genesis chapter 12. There's a promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. So through one of his descendants, so now we're getting a little bit more specific. So through this line of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. As we come to 2 Samuel, we start to narrow in a little bit more. Now we're told that it's going to be somebody from the line of David. Somebody from the line of David is going to establish his throne forever. Again, we're, at this point, we're still not entirely sure what's going to happen. We know that Satan is not going to be victorious forever. We know that somebody from Abraham's family is going to be a blessing to all nations. And now we've honed in a little bit further. We know that through David, this throne is going to be established. Now we get a little bit more information as we go into the prophets. We know that this is not going to be just any king. I wish we had the time to go back and read these verses. But if you go to Isaiah and Jeremiah, think about how it describes this one that is to come. This is not going to be just any blessing. This is not just going to be a kind person that's maybe going to help some people out. We are talking about someone who is described as wonderful, mighty God, prince of peace, a righteous branch. That's how Jeremiah describes him. And he is going to come and save Judah and reign as king. So now we're getting a little bit more information about what is going to happen. And now we're also told in Daniel... That in this time period that we're going to be studying right now, not only are you going to have this one that is going to come and be mighty 
and is going to have righteousness and truth and save Judah. But he is going to establish a kingdom that is going to surpass all other kingdoms. So all throughout the Old Testament accounts is woven these promises getting more specific and more specific and more specific about who is going to come and what he is going to do. And that's what we have the privilege to study in looking at the Gospels this quarter. I want to do also just a little bit of context. If you think about it, when we come to the end of the Old Testament, so we've had all these promises, promise after promise after promise, and we get to the end of the Old Testament. Uh, If you recall, we've had this remnant. Uh, Israel has been taken away into Assyrian captivity. Judah has been taken away into Babylonian captivity. But then, as prophesied, this remnant is allowed to return. So we have through Ezra and through Nehemiah, around about 500 B.C., they come back, they rebuild the temple. A little bit later, they come back, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're still under Persian rule. And Persian rule was was pretty tolerant. That Persia would kind of remain the dominant world power until about 332 B.C. And it's in this time period that we have the conclusion of the Old Testament. We have those prophets. Uh, We have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We have the accounts in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But then we have silence. And I want you to think about this for just a second. Uh, The Bible is far more than than just a history book. But think about this from a historical perspective. If you were studying world history and you had a 400 year gap, here's an image of what that looks like. 400 years ago, 1620, a little boat called the Mayflower lands on Plymouth. Turn the page, COVID. That's that's what a 400 year gap looks like. Think about all the things that have happened from the Mayflower to COVID. Imagine just going through a book, turning a page, how much has changed in the little blip that is our recent history in the last 400 years? As, as Bible students, that's what we are reckoning with as we go from our Old Testament to our New Testament. As we come to the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're, we're dealing with new characters. We're dealing with new developments. We're dealing with completely new world powers. Um, here's just a couple of things to kind of, to kind of bring us up to speed. Uh, like I said, we had Persia. Persia was the dominant world power. Uh, Persia kind of took over. So you had Babylon, then you had Persia. Uh, Daniel prophesies about a lot of this. But after Persia, you're going to have the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Uh, the Greek nation has been, a long, been around for a long time, um, probably going back to the period of the judges. Uh, but those Greek city-states really started to come together and gain prominence. And then Alexander the Great just you know, moved that forward at light speed. Uh, it's really quite remarkable to think about what Alexander the Great was able to accomplish really conquering the known world in such a short period of time. Uh, You know, really just in about four or five years, he he has made Greece just the absolute dominant world power. But he died shortly thereafter. Uh, so really just about eight years later, Alexander the Great died at a fairly young age. And his empire falls to those four generals. So again, a lot of this prophesied in the book of Daniel. Uh, The two generals that we're the most concerned with uh, would be the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So the Ptolemies were down in Egypt, and then you have the Seleucids that are in Syria. Uh, We're concerned with those because Judea falls right in the middle. 
So Palestine, Judea, uh, the the nation there of Israel, they're going to kind of bounce back and forth for just a little bit between the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids in Syria. Uh, They're first going to be under Seleucid control, uh, but then they're going to come back under uh, Ptolemaic control. And really, it was uh, from about 301 B.C. to 198 B.C. that they were under this, this control of the Ptolemies. And this was a peaceful time. So Alexandria... Alexandria was this great city in Egypt. This actually became a very influential city. There were lots of Jews. Uh, There were actually Jews that were brought into Alexandria. Talk about that in just a second. Um, But this was a peaceful time for the nation. Uh, However, when you come to 198, you have Antiochus the Great. So Antiochus the Great is one that then comes. He's a Seleucid Seleucid ruler. And he comes and he reconquers the area of Palestine and Judea. Antiochus the Great, then comes after him Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was extremely violent, extremely hateful toward the Jews, did everything in his power to stamp out Jewish worship, Jewish culture, and Jewish scripture. Did everything he could, defiled the temple, uh, you know, basically destroyed the temple. There are accounts that he would take hogs and he would sacrifice them on the temple just to defile it. He would then go and he would put all of the Greek gods and idols in the temple to further defile it. What this led to was the Maccabean Revolt. So if you're familiar with the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they tell the history of this time period. So now we're kind of uh, in that 175 to 165 time period. Um, You had this high priest named Mattathias who had five sons. And they became generals. And they led the Jewish people in a revolt. Uh, Mattathias died shortly after, but his son Judas Maccabeus was a, a general of remarkable skill and intelligence. And he led a far smaller Jewish force up against this Seleucid, the, the, these, Greek, these Greek armies, and had a string of victories. He was so successful, in fact, that he was actually able to retake Jerusalem and retake the temple. So they were able to purify the temple. They had this feast of dedication in 165. And that's where, uh, that's where we have Hanukkah from. Um, so we had this period where for really the next 100 years, they were still fighting. Uh, you had this string. Uh, sometimes if you look through history books, it's called uh, Asmonean or Hasmonean. But it was these descendants. It was these descendants of Mattathias and Judas and his brothers um, that really ruled over Israel, Judah, Palestine at this time. Like I said, still fighting, but they had their independence back. They could worship at the temple. Um, and, and it really wasn't until you come down to uh, the 60s BC. Rome had obviously been growing as a world power in the background, but had very little concern for Palestine. Um, actually, some of the things you read, it looks like uh, some of those Hasmonean rulers of the Jews had peace treaties with Rome. But as Rome really starts to expand its power, and they really start to go and they start to stamp out these, these Seleucid and these Ptolemaic, uh, Ptolemaic uh, kings, rulers, that's when you see uh, Palestine really kind of truly falling under Roman control. Uh, the first person who was kind of put over uh, Judea as a province was this individual Antipater. Uh, Antipater was actually an Edomite. And, and who, are, who are the Edomites descended from? Yeah, Esau. So this is actually someone who is, who is very closely connected. Uh, Antipater is then uh, going to pass his rule down to, uh, down to his son, Herod. Okay, So that's where you have Herod the Great in 37 B.C. 
Uh, Herod the Great is actually one of the things he did to try to curry favor was to go through and to repair all the damages from the fighting that had gone on the previous 100 years of the temple. So he repaired the temple. He actually enlarged the temple. And so that's why when we come to the scriptures, we, we often see it referred to as Herod's temple. Because um, Herod was the one that did that. Of course, we know, though, that, that Herod, Herod was no saint. Uh, Herod was an extremely cruel and violent individual. Um, and that's going to be evidenced at the time of the birth of Christ with his decree to kill uh, all the newborn babies. Real, real quickly, I don't want to take up just a, a ton of time, but I do want to look at a couple of things you know, maybe that are, that are worth noting for us in our study of the scriptures uh, that came out of this time period. So now we've kind of, we've got the context. We know a little bit about some of the things that are going on. And I hope that by doing that, that gives you a, a point of reference when, when Jesus is discussing things with the people. As we're going throughout the Gospels, why do they think the way they do? You know, why are they looking for a military leader and military conquest? Well, if you think about what's just happened in, in the prior 100 to 200 years, they had these individuals rise up. They, they had Judas and his brothers that rose up, and they had these string of improbable victories against the Greeks, a much, much more powerful nation. So uh, hopefully you can see a little bit as to why they would think, okay, if we're to have, this another, or if we're to have another ruler come in, he's going to lead us in an uprising and a, and a revolt against the Romans. And for us, we think, you know, why would you... Why would you think that? Rome is this giant country that has conquered the entire world, and you think that you're going to be able to have somebody that's going to lead you in victory over them? Well, that had kind of just happened. And so that's why it's, it's, it's in their heads that they're going to experience uh, this, this military, very physical, political uprising and gain their independence back. Um, so I hope that some of these things can help provide a little bit of context for us as we study throughout. Uh, the Septuagint. The Septuagint is one of the things to come out of this time period. Uh, this was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, quite probable this is what they were going to be reading, reading from. Uh, Seventy Jewish scribes were sent to Alexandria to perform this task. That's why it's called the Septuagint. Um, so you've got Sept being seven. Uh, this is the translation that was probably used most widespread in the days of Jesus. Also synagogues. We did not, we did not have synagogues, you know, one page, one page back. Now we have synagogues. You think about where they came from. They were in captivity and they were spread all around the world. You know, they weren't able to get back to the temple, so they had these local places of worship. Even after the remnant comes back, these local places of worship, the synagogues, were going to play a, a very, very critical role. And also what I want you to see is as we go throughout this, these are all things that God is using to, to bring his plan about. So you have these local centers of worship for the people, wherever they were at, even back in Judea, synagogues in, in just about every town, for them to come and to worship at. Just thinking about the dispersion itself, lots of individuals did not choose to come back, and then even individuals that did choose to come back, now with, with Greece and with Rome conquering the world, they could travel far more freely than they were able to before. And so now you have Jewish individuals spread out all throughout the world. Um, I was reading something that said that during this time period, just in Alexandria alone, Alexandria and the surrounding areas of Egypt, there might have been as many as one million Jewish individuals living there at, at, the, at the very beginning, of, at the very beginning of, of these gospel periods. Hopefully you can see that would, provide, that would provide tremendous opportunity for the spread of the gospel. And everywhere you go, if you have places where individuals are coming together to worship, 
who know the Old Testament scriptures, who know that the Old Testament is pointing forward to a Messiah, you have built-in areas where you can go and you can start spreading the gospel. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, probably some of the primary uh, antagonists uh, of Christ throughout the account of the Gospels. Uh, These really came in uh, the 3rd century B.C. as a little bit of pushback to Greek rule. So you think about when when we think of classical Greek and we think about that humanistic logic. Well, the Pharisees actually formed to push back on that as uh, the Greek Hellenistic culture was being adopted by more and more Jews, this sect of Jews called the Pharisees really were pushing back to preserve Mosaic law. Uh, so it, on its face, a very honorable, uh, honorable pursuit. However, by the time that we've gotten here, they have, they have gone so far beyond that that now it's kind of devolved into this, this self-righteousness, uh, very, very ritualistic so, so it's almost like they've forgotten their initial, initial aim and they, they've, they've really kind of just hold up, held on to these rituals. The Sadducees, on the other hand, far, far smaller. Sadducees are far smaller than the Pharisees. However, by and large, they're very, very wealthy. These are individuals that have uh, adopted more of those Greek and Hellenistic customs. Uh, so that's why you think about the Sadducees not believing in the resurrection. Makes a little more sense. You know, they have, they have really bought into this human logical thinking. Uh, very wealthy, and, and most times they are the controllers of the Sanhedrin. You know, they are the ones that have a lot of influence. So smaller, but very influential. And, and I just want to point this out as well. It's probably, been, it's probably been mentioned before, but you think about just God using all of these things together to, to spread the gospel. Why is this the time for the Messiah to come? You just think about having a common language, having peace, Having, having individuals all over the known world that are looking for a Messiah and having the ability to travel to them. It, it really is interesting to kind of step back from our perspective and think about why this was such a wonderful time for the Messiah to come and for the gospel message to spread. Let, let's talk really briefly about the authors. It, it, I think it's worth just considering why do we have four gospels? We don't, have, we don't have two or three accounts of Acts. Um, we, we don't really have a lot of other multiple accounts of, of historical things that were going on. But we have four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of, of this period of Christ. And, and they're very different. When you start to go through them, they're all very different. Uh, I was actually I was talking with David before, and we were, we were talking about how when you start to look at them, they really start to stack on top of each other. And they provide a far greater weight of evidence for the account that they are bringing forward. They are, and I saw this phrase, and I forget exactly what I was reading, but it really stuck with me. They are able to collaborate without conflicting. And, and how rare is that? You know, if you were to think about any kind of court case where you had individuals, where you had to call multiple witnesses eyewitnesses and secondary witnesses, and you had to have them all collaborate around a certain set of events, it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to have multiple individuals, some there, some not there, some getting secondhand information, some being there and seeing it with their own eyes, and they all collaborate without conflicting. And of course, it it is impossible. With man, it is impossible, but we know that we have one common author. And that's God. And these are the inspired accounts of what has happened. 
That's what we are going to be studying, these inspired accounts that are able to be written to different audiences, to have slightly different themes, slightly different approaches. But when taken together, they provide this wonderful, incredible story that can build our faith and let us know how we can be more like Christ, the Christ that they talk about. So let's look at them just briefly. And that way, you know, because as we go throughout this, if you've looked at the reading list, every week, just about, we are going to be hopping between the Gospels. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses in John, then Luke, then Matthew, then Mark. And so as we're going back and forth between these different accounts, collaborating what they're talking about, I think it helps to keep in mind what, what are maybe some of the themes uh, of each one? What are maybe some of the differences between each author to see if that can give us a little bit of greater understanding? Uh, Matthew, also called Levi, he's a former uh, tax collector, a publican. So he was an individual that would have collected Roman taxes, uh, someone who was not looked on very favorably by the Jews. In some ways, that would have been, that would have been a little bit traitorous, that you are a Jew who has, who has agreed to collect taxes from us to give to, to give to Rome. But he is providing an eyewitness account as a companion. Uh, it does seem, as you read throughout Matthew, that he had a Jewish audience in mind because he really seems to emphasize Christ as the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that the Old Testament has been talking about and pointing towards. Uh, he seems, if you're kind of looking at some differences, he seems to record longer discourses of Christ, seems to include more Old Testament quotes, which makes sense. If you're speaking to a Jewish audience, who is well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, who is looking for a Messiah, this is, this is the proof text that you're going to use to convince them. Uh, Mark, uh, so Mark, also known as John Mark, uh, he is the son of Mary. So if you go to Acts chapter 12, when Peter comes out of prison, all the saints are, are gathered together at Mary's home. That would have been his mother. He's the cousin of Barnabas. Um, so he's the individual. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. If you remember, he departed for a reason that we don't know. Uh, and then when Paul and Barnabas get ready to set out again, there's this little bit of contention. Paul doesn't want to take him because he departed prior. Barnabas does want to take him. So Paul and Barnabas are able to, to separate. Um, but as we see, that, that is not the end of Mark's interaction with, with Paul. When we go to Colossians chapter 4, he's in Rome with Paul. Uh, also appeared to have a very, very close connection to Peter. Uh, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, he refers to Mark as his son. Uh, if you look at some of those, those first century writings, uh, an individual named Papias in AD 70 uh, talked a lot about Mark. And he mentioned that Mark was a constant companion of Peter and often was his scribe and did a lot of Peter's writing for him. So we, we, may, we may reason that a lot of what Mark had in his gospel uh, was, a, was, was coming from Peter, who would have been an eyewitness there. Uh, it's been suggested that Mark may have had some Gentile readers in mind. He spent a lot of time in Rome. It's suggested that he was possibly writing this gospel account while he was in Rome. Um, but he does seem to focus more on what Christ did and less on what he said. Uh, special emphasis on the miracles. So if you're dealing with a crowd of individuals that maybe was not looking forward to the Messiah, who is not as well steeped in the Old Testament, that's exactly what the miracles were for. The miracles were to show authority, that this individual has the authority of God. Uh, Luke, we know Luke is the physician. Uh, he writes the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts, almost volume 1 and volume 2. He's writing to Theophilus and he says that he wants to compile an orderly account based on his examination of the facts. Uh, it may very well have been that at this point in time, 
there were, there were lots of smaller fragments out there, just shorter accounts of the life of Christ. So you would have had lots of eyewitnesses that would have been there as disciples of Christ, that would have seen him after the resurrection. And it, it's quite possible there were lots of individuals that had written this down. And it seems that Luke wanted to provide a complete account, not a fragment, from start to finish. So Luke 1 all the way to the end of Acts. And he was in a great position to do that. Uh, Obviously, he was a companion of Paul. He was with many of these others that were eyewitnesses. And he sought to provide certainty of faith through a complete record of the events. Let's finish up here with John, and then we'll actually get into the text with the time that we have remaining and see how much headway we can make. Uh, John was the son of Zebedee. So you have James and John, those sons of Zebedee. Uh, Possibly also the daughter of Salome. If you look at, and we we won't take the time to do this, but if you compare Matthew 27 and Mark 15, these these accounts at the cross, um, it it looks like he could have possibly been uh, the daughter of Salome, uh, which which could have also made him a relative of Jesus, a cousin or or, or kin to Jesus. If you then go back and cross-reference John chapter 19. Uh, whether he is or not is not entirely material because he was an eyewitness. We know that he was there for all of these accounts. So whether he was related to him or not, um, that's just, that was just interesting to me. Um, but he, he was more than just an eyewitness. He was more than just someone who was kind of in the crowd. He was one of those individuals who was in that, you know, if you want to call it the inner circle. He was intimately connected with Jesus. There for all of these things. He's someone who, like the others, uh, left, left what he had. He left his father. He left his business. Um, if, you, if you do some reading about John, it's kind of interesting because it, it seems that he not only had this business uh, with his father. It mentions they had hired servants, so it sounds like it was a pretty good business. Um, later on, we found out that John, uh, John was, somehow knew the high priest. So John was not somebody who was just kind of sitting off to the side of the road with nothing else to do. But John was somebody who left what he had. And he, he may have had a very good life, a profitable life. He had connections. But he left what he had to follow the Savior and then recorded, and recorded that for us to read. Uh, he's known as the one that Jesus loved. So he was extremely close to Jesus, as we've already mentioned. And, and what I love about John is that he lays out his purpose. You, you don't have to guess what the purpose of the Gospel of John is because he tells us. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, he says, I want to inspire belief. I want to communicate to you that Jesus is the Son of God. No doubt about it. He is deity. He is the Son of God, and I want you to believe that. And he wants to show from the words of Jesus himself who the Messiah was. Uh, it's possible if you, kinda, if you do a lot of research, you think about some of the competing doctrines at the time. We've talked before about the gospel of the Gnostics or the doctrine of the Gnostics. These individuals that believed they had uh, you know, special knowledge, they had greater knowledge than everybody else. And one of the things that it seems that they pushed back on was the deity of Jesus. And John says, absolutely not. He is the Son of God. He is God who walked among us. And I want you to believe in that. Uh, again, possibly intended for Gentiles, because as you go throughout, he explains Jewish customs and Jewish words. I'm going, to take, I'm going to take one little break right there. Does anybody have any thoughts or any comments before we actually jump into the text? All right. Let's keep going. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are, uh, we're, going to, we're going to start here. And remember, as we just said, John's aim is to show that Jesus is God. 
So John chapter 1 and in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boom, we're right there. No, no, no mistaking it, no beating around the bush. He's not like God. He's not, you know, he kind of looks like he is God. In the beginning, from the very beginning. So it wasn't like he was made a God at some point in time. He wasn't lower and then elevated up. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He came down. I don't know what the, he de-escalated. Oh, that, that didn't sound right. But he didn't elevate. He came down. He was there in the very beginning. So he was with God. He was God. He was an equal part of creation. It's been mentioned before when you go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Let us make man in our image. So there, there was a plurality there from the very beginning. And John answers without a doubt, who is part of that plurality? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus was there from the very beginning. Uh, what I think is interesting is when you go further in John's gospel, John chapter 17. When you think about, when you think about this, John 17 verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus, in his, in his own words, as recorded by John, talking about the glory that he had with the Father from before. Uh, just one, one quick question, and, and you can just, just shout it out. Why refer to Jesus as the Word? Okay, yeah, so you've got that eternal nature. You've got the eternal nature, but what, what, what does that make you think of when you, when you see the Word? Okay, you've got, you've got an authorship element there. I'll put it this way. What do we use words for? Communicate. Yeah, to understand, to communicate, to express ourselves. We use words to express ourselves and to communicate. How did God choose to express himself to us? His son. It was through his son. Uh, when, you, when you go to Hebrews, right? When you go to Hebrews, is that Hebrews chapter 1? Uh, when you go to Hebrews chapter 1... God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So God, in, in the Old Testament, spoke directly to individuals. He sent individuals. Uh, he sent angels to talk to individuals. He has he, he communicated in different ways. But what does it tell us in verse 2? Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. What, what a wonderful companion passage to what we're seeing here in John chapter 1. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Just a, just a beautiful parallel. Because when you look at it, at the, you're like, you know, why, why is it called the word? Why, why not just say, in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. He is God. He refers to him as the word. But we can see that the word, word is how we communicate. And yes, there's absolutely, there's ideas of, of eternity there. There's ideas of authorship. There's ownership. But it's also how God communicated. And in time past, he communicated to the fathers. He communicated through the prophets. But now, with greater weight, with even greater authority, God sent his own son to communicate directly to us. Uh, if you go down to, to verse 4, uh, you go down to verse 4 there. It says, God in the flesh came to be a light to all men. This is not going to be the only time that he refers to himself as the light. Uh, if you go to chapter 8 and verse 12, you go to chapter 9 and verse 5 of John, he refers to himself as the light. And again, just think about light. W what, is, what is the purpose of light? Yeah, it's going to cast out the darkness and it's going to show us the way. It, it, is going to, it is going to show us 
the truth. The light shows us the path. It shows us the way to the Father. So go a little bit further in John. John chapter 14. What does Jesus say there when they want to know? John chapter 14, when Thomas asked him in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You've you got to love Thomas's honesty. <laughs> you know, listen, guys, I don't get it. I don't know where we're going, and I don't know the way. At, le- at least he was honest about it. And, and, he, and he gets the answer. He gets the answer in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what the light does. The light brings knowledge. The light brings truth. The light casts out the darkness. Darkness clouds things. We can't see when it's dark. We can't, we can't really see where we're going. We know exactly where we're going with Jesus. To help prepare us for this true light, John the Baptist is introduced. When you go, uh, when you go down to these next couple of verses, uh, it talks about John the Baptist. Uh, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, he came for a witness to bear witness of that light that all through him might believe. And then when we come down uh, to those last couple of verses, uh, again, we see the glory of the Father represented to us in the Son. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God came to us, and I don't think we should overlook this, God came to us in a form that we could understand. That's especially impactful when you go to Hebrews. Uh, When you go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, when we think about the high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. So there's a two-way relation there. Now, God has come and expressed himself to us in a form that we can understand, sort of, but we've got a better chance of understanding this. And now he has experienced, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he can relate to us and we can relate to him. All right, uh, like I said, we've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and go to Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we've got here in Matthew chapter 1 and also in Luke chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Uh, we have these lineages. We have these lineages of Christ. Um, somebody tell me real quick, are these lineages the same? No, no they're not. Uh, why is that? Yeah, okay, so we've got our uh, escalator, de-escalator, up and down escalator. So you're right, we're going in different directions. Uh, Matthew, is, Matthew is an abridged lineage, so three groupings of 14. He starts with Abraham, and he goes to Joseph. Um, now, even beyond that, if you go to Luke's, uh, and we'll kind of move through, we'll, through, we'll try to group these two things together for the sake of time. Luke's is, is far greater. We're going all the way back to Adam, and then it even says, Adam, the son of God. So we're going all the way back. But they're also not, they're also not the same and different. They, they deviate at Zerubbabel, and they come back, and we've got two different fathers. We've got two different fathers of Joseph. What, what's a possible explanation for that? Okay? That, that's, that's the one that seems to make the most sense, that you're tracing the lineage through Mary, and you're also tracing the lineage through Joseph. Uh, and so, one way that I think about it, uh, uh, Matthew traces through the man, Luke traces through the lady, uh, Brother John's got a comment. And so, that would, if, if, that, if that is the case, if what we're seeing there is the case, if you're tracing one through one, that provides, that provides no room, no room for error. You know, you have both a legal 
a legal authority that has been passed down, and you also have a blood authority. John? So the Messiah would be the son of David. I forget which is which, but one traces David through Solomon, son Solomon, the other through Nathan, I believe it is. Yep. Yep. So you've got you've got Solomon and Nathan. You, you kind of come back together at Zerubbabel. So you know you think that there's a little bit of a bottleneck there. You didn't have you didn't have a lot of options. So you come to Shealtel, uh, Jeconiah, Shealtel, Zerubbabel, and then you branch off again. What I want us to think about, and really just for the for the sake of time, is uh, when you come here. Just, just consider this for a second. Consider how God worked through individuals to preserve this promise across thousands of years, 4,000, 5,000 years. You've got all these individuals. I mean, how many, how many family names die out all the time? We, we see family names die out all the time without an heir to pass them on. But yet God made this promise from the very beginning, and he worked through these chosen individuals. And I, and I wish we had the time to go and look at some of the individuals that were able to be, you know, what an honor to be in this bloodline of Christ. But yet God worked through all these individuals to ensure that, yes, those promises that he made from the very beginning, somebody from the seed of Abraham was going to come and bless all nations. Somebody from the line of David was going to come and reign on that throne for all of eternity. Uh, let, let's go to Luke chapter 1. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Clearly not going to make it. But let's go to Luke chapter 1, because now we get into the account of the beginning. Uh, only Matthew and Luke actually discuss the childhood of Christ. And, and Luke actually begins, which I think is interesting, right where Malachi picks off. Uh, right, right where Malachi drops off. If you go to Malachi, um, you go to Malachi chapter 4, those last couple of verses, Malachi chapter 4 and in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. Well, you go to Luke, and who do we see being announced in the very beginning of Luke? But John the Baptist. So Luke, if you go there in chapter 1, we have John's birth being announced to Zacharias. Now, is Zacharias young or was he old? He was old. He was old. Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were well past uh, childbearing age, but yet we have, we have angel Gabriel coming to Zacharias and, and telling him, like you said, you can, go down to, you can go down to verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. You go down to verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And it even quotes from Malachi right there. So right where the Old Testament account drops off, we have coming back this one who is going to come and prepare the way. Now, like we've seen before, it's interesting how many parallels you have. Did Zacharias believe this? No. No. It's amazing to me to think about the parallels, uh, the parallels between Abraham and Sarah and, and Zacharias and Elizabeth. You have parents of old age. You have this child of promise. You have a doubting parent. But yet, in the end, you have God showing, once again, nothing is impossible for him. He, he can work through whoever he wants to fulfill his promises. Um, let, let's, let's go ahead and go on to the next section there, picking up in verse 26. So we've had uh, this, this news announced to Zacharias. Uh, Zacharias, because he did not believe, was made mute. So when he finishes his temple service, he's mute. He can't talk. Um, and this will be used later on to confirm the power of God. Uh, but now we switch in the account, and when we go to verse 26... 
uh, verse 26 down through about verse 38, Gabriel, having visited Zacharias and Elizabeth, now comes and visits Mary. And so we have uh, Mary in Nazareth of Galilee, and he tells her the wonderful news that she is going to conceive a son and name him Jesus. Uh, Verse 28, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Uh, try, to, try to put yourself in Mary's situation. You have this angel coming and telling you that you are going to have a child through miraculous means. And, and by the way, if that isn't enough, this child is going to be the Messiah. It, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to be in her shoes. And just imagine, I mean, I, I can only imagine she's just completely awestruck. That, that this, this has been, this has just kind of dropped on her. No, no, no preparation, no warning. Hey, by the way, Mary, you're going to have a child. It's going to be miraculous. It's not just going to be any child. This is going to be the Messiah. When you go down to verse 32, he says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So basically, no pressure. <laughs> But this is really, really, really important. This is the one. You know, you think about, go back to those things we talked about from the Old Testament. From Genesis all through, all through the rest. These promises, this angel, Gabriel, is now coming and telling Mary, you are the one. The Messiah is going to come from you. So she goes to visit Elizabeth. And this is the confirmation that is given. Because you, can you imagine somebody telling you this and you're like, I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's probably not, probably not true, but the confirmation that's given is go see your, go see your, go see Elizabeth, go see your relative Elizabeth. She is also conceiving miraculously. So not, not, not by the same means, but also still miraculously. She is conceiving a son miraculously. And that is the confirmation that what I'm telling you is going to happen. And so when you go, and this will be the last thing that we look at this morning, just, just for sake of time. But when you go down a little bit further, so verse 36, Indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And for now, this is the sixth month for her who is barren. Verse 37, For with God, nothing will be impossible. So Mary's got to go check this out. So when you come to verse 39, Mary, uh, Mary goes, she enters the house of Zacharias, she greets Elizabeth, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke out with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? There's the confirmation. There's the confirmation that Mary was looking for. As she goes to visit someone who is also experiencing miraculous birth and who unprompted confirms what the angel has told her. Uh, we, we've got to stop right there. Uh, Jason has got some more copies of the weekly reading list. Um, so we will pick up right there and then we'll finish off with uh, Matthew chapter 1 and we'll, then we'll go into next week's. Uh, but I, I appreciate your patience. Uh, appreciate your appreciate your time. And hopefully next week we'll have a little bit more time for comments.